Welcome to Media at Risk, a podcast from the Center for Media at Risk at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. Today's episode is the second in the two-part series produced by Annenberg doctoral student Gina Seiber and visiting scholar Sebastian Mort. Gina and Sebastian interviewed historian and scholar Ruth Ben-Ghiat, and today they'll be talking about the Trump administration and the news media. Hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Gina Seibert. And I'm Sebastian Mort. Welcome back to the Media at Risk podcast on authoritarianism in the Trump era. In the second part of our conversation with NYU professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat, we discussed the importance of public scholarship, Trump's relationship to the media, and the challenges of propaganda in the digital age. You seem to um, assume many different roles, historian, cultural critic, and political commentator. How do you conceive of the social and political role of scholars and their engagement with the public, especially in times as fraught as ours? I think that in times as fraught as ours is a good starting point because uh, public scholarship is, it's not for everyone. It's a necessity, but it's also a luxury in some ways. I feel fortunate that I, I am a full professor. I'm at a private university because people will... Uh, if they don't like what you're saying, they will write and try and get you fired. So that if you're at a public university taking public funds, that becomes more problematic. Academics doesn't always know what to do with public scholarship. It's not necessarily rewarded by your institution. So that's why I say it's not for everyone. It's a bit of a luxury to do. But I also think if you work on the topics that I do, I think there's a need to write and to speak in a an accessible manner so people understand the historical roots of what is happening today and to take a step back and look at, as I'm doing in my book or in my talks, the kind of authoritarian playbook and where somebody like Donald Trump or Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil fits into it so that we can have a sense of where, where these things that are very frightening that are happening today are coming from. And do you have a, a sense that these roles ever conflict at times? That's, that's an excellent question. Committing to doing public scholarship, uh, I've been doing it fairly intensively. I've, I've done almost 70 uh, op-eds and essays in the last years. I've done just as many interviews. Uh, that it, it doesn't conflict with teaching at all. In fact, it infuses the teaching. It, it can conflict with doing certain kinds of scholarship, which is another reason it can be easier to do this if you're not coming up for tenure because uh, publishing essays in the New York or the Atlantic, as, as nice as that is, is not going to get you tenure. In terms of does it conflict in terms of politics in the classroom, because I've, stu- I've done so many things publicly, I'm pretty clear about everyone will know my opinions, but I, I believe that my classrooms are places where people of any opinion can speak out. And a lot of what I'm doing is historical work in the classroom. Um, so I, I don't personally see a conflict. It's maybe a time conflict, which we all have in our lives. And I also think that you make time to do the things that you think are most important in your life. 
You've spoken about how you've written uh, numerous op-eds, but you also have a very active presence on Twitter, um, talking with um, a lot of different scholars, politicians, online critics, and the like. What made you cultivate this online presence, and how do you believe you've used Twitter particularly to engage with the world? Have there been certain benefits and drawbacks to this? We, we all know Twitter is, can be a double-edged tool. I think it's pretty unparalleled for communication in certain areas. I think in there's political Twitter, as you know, there's food Twitter, there's all these subgroups and subcultures. I have learned a lot from others from being on Twitter. I am probably guilty of using it too often as my news feed. For me, that's been good because it's not my only source. I think that what we're trying to do today, many of us, is a definitely a collective project. Each of us can contribute to sensitizing the public about threats to democracy and, and how to neutralize them and how to, go about, how to go forward in the future with this knowledge. So for me, it's been very enriching. I also feel that there's a responsibility to being on Twitter, both in, in the tone of what you write and it's, it's important to warn people without perhaps being overly alarmist. It's something that each person who is on Twitter can figure out as they go along. The other obvious thing that can happen is you can be trolled. And I did have in spring of 2017 an episode of being the latest person to be um, mass trolled, swarmed by the right with you know, anti-Semitic propaganda and all that. And, and that's a learning experience. It's worth it for me to do this kind of work. I've also had threats off of Twitter. Um, and I actually had to move my office within NYU for security reasons that same year. But it's worth it to do this kind of work. Um, and Twitter used responsibly, I think, is a great tool. Do you think that scholars' greater presence online help or hinder political discourse? I think it helps. It, it's also a way to uh, make scholars write more clearly. And I think that academic rhetoric sometimes can get in the way of clear communication. And I'll just speak for myself that I, I think I was always a fairly clear writer and also somebody who made a decision early in my career to put a lot of the theory I used in my notes rather than in the text. But certainly my prose has gotten clearer, my arguments have gotten sharper from doing all the writing for the media. So in that sense, doing public scholarship, you know, the scholarship media equation, I think it, it can help. And then for the other side, it's useful for the public to have scholarly interventions if they can diffuse knowledge that you've built up in archives and libraries for years and diffuse this to the public. For those who can do it, it's a winning proposition. like to um, fo focus more precisely on, on Trump and his relationship to the news media. So in a, in a book he published in 2015, he says, quote, I use the media the way the media uses me to attract attention. 
We have a mutually profitable relationship with the media. We give each other what we need. Do you have the same understanding of this relationship? That's a typical Trump communication because it's self-serving. And Trump also sometimes will skewer the kind of hypocrisy, uh, of which is why he has a lot of supporters among certain groups. Because indeed, you know, his rise was made possible by mainstream media that he now critiques, and he's used that very effectively. I think that part of it is that the media did not understand who they were dealing with, and also has, it's been very difficult for the big outlets to put principles before profit, because in, in, in no world of democratic health do you have somebody like Kellyanne Conway still today. So for two and a half years, almost three years, America has listened to her lies. She is a paid propagandist. And what if the, what if the Republicans turned around and did that? What if, what if some of his supporters is, turned around and did that? That is you know, not it's even Maxine, Excuse me, it's Maxine Ward. Oh, no, no, context. let's let's review the facts here. And again, here we go back to, I see her like as though she were a, a Russian being paid by Putin. She is a pre professional propagandist. And to put her on TV constantly is, if you ha care about democracy, is insane. But it's been very difficult, first because they didn't understand, I think, what Trump represented, and now because I think it's very hard to move journalistic culture forward or they are greedy for ratings. And in that sense, what Trump said is totally true. He's also used this authoritarian tactic where you you lead the media and the public through Twitter, for example, around like a ringmaster. You tweet this, and then everybody swarms around that, and it sets the news cycle, which is what personality cults do. He tweeted a short time ago. You can see his three, it's his full three-part tweet storm here. Trump is able to approximate that. He has Fox News helping him and other outlets. The media on the whole has served him more than it has harmed him so far. And what do you think could have been done differently or could be done differently from the standpoint of the news media? Well, one, one thing is you once you have recognized, which happened way long ago, I'll just keep the same example of Kellyanne Conway, once you recognize that she is repeating lies. So it's one thing to have the problem of a president who is repeating lies because you have the issue, which has been discussed, of should we not cover him? Well, it's hard not to cover the president. So the, the solution has been fact checks, which now are coming on TV in real time as well as in, on websites. But Kellyanne Conway, you don't need to have her on. There's no reason to have her on. You could have somebody from a conservative point of view who doesn't lie. That's pluralism. But having a paid propagandist on is self-defeating. So that's a big example because the, the history of The decline of democracy and the rise of strongmen is, is the history of letting these people have so much say that they damage the notion of truth and fact. There's also, Trump seems to be encouraging this distrust in, of the media, of mainstream media, of the press. What purpose do you think this encouraging of mistrust of the media serve and how effective has it been 
since he has come into office, or even before then? It serves many purposes. It's incredibly economical and efficient for authoritarians to attack the media. The first thing which doesn't get enough play, attacking the media is insurance policy for strong men. And I'm including whether they're in power yet or not, but especially if they're in power. Why is it insurance? Because 100% of these men are corrupt. They break the law in many ways. If they are accused in a democracy of fraud, of crimes, of assault, whatever they've done, they need the population to already not believe the media, which is why they, if they're running for office, they start very early, and their ideal is by the time they get into office, they've already conditioned a lot of the public to reject the media that's not allied with them. And that's part of polarization, right? We have political polarization, which is mirrored in polarization of the media landscape. What Trump has done, he, he followed that, and then since he's come to power, he has been relentless. This is probably his most consistent talking point. He has a couple of them. And it's worked because a lot of Americans don't believe the, quote, mainstream media, which is a phrase that people use who want to discredit the media. And so now, if his investi the investigation doesn't go well, or someone has just accused him of sexual assault uh, during his campaign, he's got it set up so that half the electorate won't believe the media. So that's just one of the many things. The other is that it's a convenient enemy. And it's very interesting uh, example of the effectiveness of propaganda because his other enemies, for example, migrants. Many people in every country are hostile to migrants or his racism. Many people have always been hostile to people of a different color than they are. But the media in America, the, there wasn't this level of hatred. This is a manufactured enemy. And so it's a perfect case study of the effectiveness of these tactics because people didn't hate the media enough to want to slaughter them before, whereas they've always slaughtered other targets. And it simply increases his power. It provides a, a vent, a scapegoat, because every strongman needs a scapegoat. It provides theater and for him, for his rallies. They're penned up. You have people with T-shirts that say, rope, you know, tree, let's hang journalists. So it, it's part of his ritual as a strongman to hate the media. So it's incredibly central to all the areas of his kind of theater and his self-defense. Today's moment is characterized by um, rapid technological change. Image manipulation, misinformation online, and deep fakes are being used by various groups, including uh, Trump supporters. How do these new technologies aid the dissemination of propaganda? What, what a lot of these things do is to simply make easier what propaganda has always done. So propaganda has always used rumor and innuendo to kind of cast doubt 
propaganda has always um, said something that's A is instead B, or someone who believes this instead believes that. Those are smear tactics. The Soviets, for example, under communism, were experts in what we today would call Photoshop. Um, it was very normal in throughout the Soviet bloc for photos to be retouched as you know Stalin or whoever of the moment decided that somebody was out or they'd been killed. So there had to be no trace they were ever there. So they became very expert at photo manipulation. So these are these are tactics which have always been going on, and digital life. The speed of circulation, the speed of manipulation of information and objects just makes this easier. But it's also much harder to tell when things have been faked. Now, deep fake is it's constructing an entirely false reality. It's another level. We're entering an era in which our enemies can make it look like anyone is saying anything at any point in time. Jordan Peele created this fake video of President Obama to demonstrate As how As we know, here at Annenberg, this is, there are people, many people studying this is going to present a huge problem for the future, but it's just a, a, it's a symptom of this kind of progressive truth decay, that no one will know what is certain and what is not. And this puts you on the defensive. You're going along and then you have to prove all of a sudden that you didn't do something. And so this will be used uh, very effectively to demolish candidates. And I think that we, we haven't developed a counter protocol yet. How would you like the media to approach this coming election season knowing what we know now? I mean, I'm not a specialist on this, so it's it's hard for me to, to, to answer completely. But I think a lot of the things that are being done are, are great with the fact-checking. I think there's been a lot of sensitization to what doesn't work. There's a lot of discussion, thoughtful discussion going on in newsrooms. There's still the danger of not wanting to seem partisan and so bending over backwards the other direction, which has been an issue at the New York Times, it's been an issue for CNN, and the, uh, the woman who was hired to, to uh, kind of direct the campaign coverage uh, at CNN, there was a lot of outrage about this because she was a, a Republican operative who had no journalism experience, and Jeff Zucker directly hired her. And then there were articles coming out about Jeff Zucker's are reminding us of their old relationship, he and Trump. But there's been so much fear of losing the credo of journalistic objectivity, when in fact, if you're under siege, if your democracy is under siege, it's difficult to remain in that neutral position for too long. And this is the biggest, this is a big issue. I don't have an answer to it. But that is a big issue. And already, by hiring so many more investigative journalists, so many fact-checkers, the way that the big media outlets, at least like the New York Times and the Washington Post, have transformed themselves, even though Marty Barron says we're not at war, we're at work, the work has changed. So the question is whether it's going to change enough to avoid some of the outcomes that 
some people like Jay Rosen and other press critics are predicting and that it won't be, that no one has learned any lessons and that we're going to have another 2016 or worse because the conditions of the country have deteriorated. This is the problem. Thank you so much. Thank you for speaking with us today. And we look forward to your upcoming book, Strong Men from Mussolini to Trump. Thank you so much. Thank you. This episode was produced by me, Sebastian Mort, and Gina Seibert, and edited by Aaron Shapiro. We'd like to thank Ruth Ben-Ghiat, Waldo Aguirre, and Emily Plowman. Barbie Zelizer is the director of the Center for Media at Risk. More information can be found at www.ascmediarisks.org.